Welcome back to another episode of the podcast, Rami Umptum Ruminations. My name is Scott, and I'm the host. Today's very special episode is called Speak of the Devil, and He Shall Appear. Thanks for coming back to listen to the podcast again. Today's episode is going to be a treat. I am so excited to have a conversation about Satan, but also I'm so excited to bring back on a guest that we had on about a year ago to bring her expertise on the subject of biblical history and Old Testament, New Testament scholarship. So welcome back to the podcast, Kaisa. Thank you, Scott. This is... What like perfect timing for this conversation, right? Oh, Halloween. yeah. <laughs> I love it. I'm planning on releasing this right before Halloween. So it'll be it'll be a treat for the listeners to to get into the Halloween spirit. Yes. And it let me tell you, so in reviewing some of my notes for this conversation, it definitely helped me get in the Halloween spirit <laughs> and you know, put me down all kinds of rabbit holes because this is a really interesting subject to look into. Yeah. Halloween is one of my favorite times of year. I love scary stories. I love scary movies and shows. And it's it, this is just a treat for me. So I'm, I'm excited. Great. Okay, let's do this. Right before we get going, I want to outline briefly kind of what the discussion is going to look like. So for the listeners, we're going to uh, cover different versions of Satan throughout history. I've covered this multiple times on the podcast, but brief recap. There's no such thing as univocality within the scriptures. Every writer had their own take or their own interpretation of the gospel or the religion. And we're going to highlight some of those different takes on Satan throughout time. And I'm really excited to get into it. But before we do that, Kaisa, I would love to know if you have a favorite depiction of Satan in movies, TV shows any sort of modern depiction of the morning star in any sort of media? Okay, well, you know, I did prepare a little bit based on what we were going to discuss. <laughs> and so I'm glad you gave me kind of a heads up. Um, but I'm going to give you two answers. Is that okay? okay? Yeah, okay. yeah. So originally I was looking at art um, and I was looking at, by, I wasn't really looking modern. Um, one of my favorite artists... Well, I was going to do two parts. I was going to ask for art as well, but go for it. Go for okay, it. Okay, well, let's. I'll just launch right into it. I am sure for all of you kind of lovers of knowledge and fellow nerds out there, you're familiar with the Garden of Earthly Delights. It's a painting by Hieronymus Bosch. Um, and if you Google this, it is all kinds of strange. This painting um, has all sorts of obscene images in it. Um, and actually, I didn't realize that Satan was depicted in this painting. I just knew that there was in this one section a bluish humanoid figure with a bird head eating a body that was, you know, extricating some blackish looking gas with crows coming out the anus. Like it's all kinds of obscene. That is Satan. 
I'm looking at the picture right now, and that is fascinating. <laughs> yeah, it, it, you know, I think what I appreciate about this painting is it it combines the absurd with the horrible, right? And I feel like when I study religion, I often come. I'm bridging both, right? The the absurd, the obscene. And the horrible, um, and some humor. So that kind of comes ties in with the obscene. So yeah, I, that's something that I feel like if you look at the whole painting in general, you could stare at that for a very long time and ask a lot of questions. But there you go. So that's that's Satan right there. Now, were you going to share yours with me? Your your artistic favorite? One of my artistic favorites, and this is um, an illustration by Gustave Doré. And I don't know too much about the artist, but he's from um, the early 19th century. But it's a depiction of of, uh, Satan from Dante. Ah, okay. So uh, we'll we'll get to this in a little bit in in our discussion. But Dante's Satan has like like three heads and he's like chewing on a person in each head. So he can't really talk. He's also like frozen from like the waist down. But I love how he's drawn in this one because he's just kind of like pensive like he's like a foreboding like huge menacing creature but he's also just kind of like stuck there and he's like huh well i guess this is my life now it has a lot of different emotions that he's that are coming through in this this version of satan and i just love it so now i need to be sure that i'm looking at the the right one it's illustration of canto 34 Okay, that's what I was looking for. Okay, Canto thirty four. Yeah, and it's it's kind of black and white. It's it's an interesting. Ah, yep. uh, okay. You've got the bodies of all the other people like in pain. Yep. Down on the bottom, but then there's Satan yes. frozen from the waist down. He's just kind of like, well, I'm stuck here, <laughs> just chewing on these people. <laughs> it's just kind of like a. a a fun interpretation, but also like really foreboding. Like he's really, really big. He is very big. Yes. And it's as if with that waist down thing, you know, you wonder, okay, is he really frozen? Is he, is this, he's making himself comfortable because this is what he's about. This people eating that he's gonna, he's doing and he's looking (laughs) at these other people. That's a good one. That's a good one. I do like that, that uh, depiction. As far as like movies or TV shows, do you have a favorite depiction of like a live action Satan? So I would say most recently, the one that has planted itself in my mind. I don't know if you've seen the Netflix's mini series, The Devil in Ohio. Oh, I haven't. Have you heard of this? I have. It's got the gal from Bones, Zoe Deschanel's sister. Yes, it's on my list. I haven't watched it yet. Okay, well, I I enjoyed it um, specifically because of our LDS background, which we're going to talk about that, I'm sure, because you can talk about Satan and the devil, and then you can talk about the Mormon version of Satan. That's a whole nother rabbit hole. And there's some depictions and verbiage used to describe Satan in this show that really reminded me of some of the things I was taught as a Latter-day Saint, you know, when I was practicing and active and believing. And and specifically in the show, it's kind of a mystery uh, coming of age of this young girl who's escaping the cult, but also 
feeling like she needs to go back because of the things that they taught her that, you know, they need her and she's the chosen one that's going to be sacrificed to Satan, to Lucifer. They're Luciferian. And at the beginning, they have a historical story that they tell of their origins that basically, um, it parallel, it, or excuse me, it compares Jehovah to Lucifer and why these two were opposites and why one choice was better than the other. And it, uh, it gets your mind spinning. So I actually really enjoyed it. I binge watched it and yeah, yeah. You get some very typical imagery associated with Satan as far as, um, blackbirds, crows, ravens, but also the, the, um, goat man appearance, right. With massive horns and, um, dark, dark, you know, kind of demonic association there, even though you're dealing with this idea that he's a light giver. It's it's really fascinating. So, yep, that's that's my other one. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Did you watch The Sandman that came out on Netflix over the summer? I have not. No. I love the graphic novel. It's such a great read. It's pretty dark and there's it it's, can get very graphic. Um, so content warning for any listeners that that look into it that may not want um, to watch something that gets that intense, but they do have episode four, the main character dream. He goes to hell and he meets Lucifer. I just pulled him up right now. Oh my goodness. Gwendolyn Christie plays Lucifer. And so there's a female playing Lucifer. And if you know the actress, she's been Game of Thrones. She was in um, some of the new Star Wars movies. She's a very tall, like beautiful woman, like really light, um, almost white hair. Right. Almost albino-ish. Right. Yeah. She's just like this gorgeous, imposing, like tall Lucifer. She's like the way they the way they uh, portray it in the show and the way that they've shot the the scenes, she just towers over the main character and just like this imposing, like beautiful figure with these massive leathery wings. Like it's yes. both like the way it's depicted is just like really cool to look at, but also the way uh, Gwendolyn Christie acts as Lucifer is so much more restrained and like pensive than like all of the other demons that you meet in hell. And it's, it's really a fun um, exchange to watch. Now. Yeah. I think you've got me on this one. First <laughs> off, I think this takes it. You win. Um, now I've got to watch this. <laughs> That's brilliant. What a brilliant casting. Oh yeah. Yeah. And she's, she's just amazing in the role. Now she doesn't have a huge part to play in the story. Mm-hmm. If they keep if they keep going, if there's a second season and they continue on, then she will be a much bigger player. But in season one, she just has that one episode. Uh, you know, as I'm as I'm looking at the few pictures here, I've taken screenshots from the from the show. In some, when they show her whole body, she's got these like six inch heels as well. Which, like you said, she's already very tall, and I actually really appreciate that because. And some of the artwork, you know, and depending on the time period of where these ideas of Satan are coming from, you've got this kind of tormented slash very uh, expressive sexuality coming out connected to Satan, right? These Because, of course, with that Christian idea, which is a false narrative, but the idea that Lucifer is the snake in the Garden of Eden, like 
which as Mormons we believe, um, but isn't necessarily biblical. And this idea of Satan being tied into these sexual urges and the fruit being sex, and which I know you're going to get into when we talk about Paradise Lost. Good stuff. Yeah, so go check it out. It's it's such a great show. There are multiple episodes that just oh, they just brought me to tears because just so such powerful storytelling. Well, I'm just glad even for this because. If this is all our podcast does, um, if it brings you to tears, it sounds like a show worth watching. And I would have missed it, Scott. So this is great. Pop culture at its finest. It's definitely, definitely worth watching. Okay. Thank you. Well, let's jump into this. Let's, uh, as, so you mentioned the snake being related to Lucifer or, or Satan, if you will. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We can't start there. Historically, so if we're going to go back as far as we can to the earliest iteration of Satan, it doesn't start in Genesis. No, it does not. Well, and that's kind of a the way you phrased it there. Um, if I'm following your train of thought, um, Genesis would be too early. Yes, exactly. Right? Technically, I mean, if we're if we're coming from just a biblical perspective, not extra canonical. Yeah, Genesis is way too early. So when when would the first and I've I've got an episode that I've recorded that I'll put out and go digging into more um, in depth uh, based on a book by um, by uh, Ryan E. Stokes, say, uh, the Satan, okay. how God's executioner became the enemy. So I'm going to cover oh, some awesome. of those chapters in that. But the the premise is that it was a title first, right? And then after the exile it later shifted into a proper noun or the name of a person instead of a title. Right. Correct. So, I mean, if you want, we can just get talking and feel free to interject, Scott, however you want to. But this is one of those things where even if you have a basic familiarity with um, biblical languages or at least an ability to navigate those through lexicons or, you know, online uh, Bible study tools. That's the way I do it because I don't read these languages. <laughs> yeah, of course. Right. And I don't anymore. So it's very helpful um, and just really opens your eyes to the trajectories that can t- take place as a result of one translation to another. And so this idea of Satan, right? We know him, especially as Latter-day Saints, right? The great accuser, the adversary. That's an idea that we've maintained as Latter-day Saints for sure. Or Mormons, the post-Mormon. You, you get what I'm saying there. Yeah, yeah, um, I gotcha. Yeah, it's a big thing in our tradition. But um, I think most Christians would not necessarily be familiar with that concept. That's definitely something that comes from Joseph Smith and his connection to mysticism and Judaism. And we can get into that later. But this idea of obstructing or opposing, um, like you said, it's more of a a title. Um, And it can become a thing, a person who does this, but eventually becoming this idea of the Satan, this heavenly accuser. Um, But it's fascinating that throughout the Hebrew text, you have many examples of angelic messengers or even earthly persons who are acting in this capacity of an accuser. Yeah. Right? And there's even in Deuteronomy, the the spirit of Yahweh is referred to as a Satan. Which is fascinating, right? I mean, that is that is so fascinating because I think just kind of culturally we're we're raised assuming 
all opposition slash darkness slash temptation comes from an individual and that individual is the devil. And yet here we have very early on in the Old Testament, this association of that word, Satan, connected to Jehovah. It's fascinating. Yeah. Perhaps the earliest story would be Job. Okay. Yep. Where it starts to be identified as a proper noun. Correct. But even even there in the earliest parts, um, now different different scholars will split Job into multiple different sections, typically like a poetic verse one and then a prose one that gets mm-hmm. all mashed together uh, by a redactor later. In the story of Job, the B'nai Elohim, or the sons of God, these supernatural entities right. that a listener that might be familiar with like Genesis 6, these are the same uh, B'nai Elohim that came down and had children with uh, the daughters of Adam. It's a, it's a supernatural being, a child of God, um, brings the, the B'nai Elohim and asks who will be the Satan, who will come and be the uh, opposition for Job. And in the story, one of them comes forward and he comes in and he assumes this title of Satan. But then after this story, it gets reinterpreted later as Satan already having existed as a cosmic opposite of God. Uh, yeah. And that, that idea of cosmic opposite, you know, and I'm sure you were going to frame this, but I'll just throw it out there. This, this book, Job, right? We know that it's part of a group of, of texts that are associated as wisdom literature in, in the Old Testament. And so that specific book is part of these texts that were coming, as you said, they were exilic or even post-exilic in that they were heavily influenced by traditions that Israel um, kind of adopted and incorporated during the exile um, while they were um, dealing with uh, the Babylonian captivity. And you get these Persian ideas that, you know, you talked about the cosmic what was the phraseology you used there, Scott? I, I said the cosmic opposite. Yes. Um, and this is very reflective when you start to study Zoroastrianism and the possible concept of, and I forget the terms, there's Ahura Mazda, and then there's the opposite there, the, the, this, this idea of a, a dark uh, or an a oppositional energy or deity that is constantly working in contrast to or in opposition with the good or the righteous. And you kind of see that. Um, you see that idea somewhat implied as you as you kind of jump into the text of Job, but you also notice this wasn't something being talked about or it represented in this way up until this point. And so it's really clear, okay, this is the injection of a new idea a new concept that's seeming to be adopted by the Israelites, but it's got to be, it's got to be extra cultural. It's coming from somewhere else. But again, like, I think it's really interesting that we are most Christian memory. You talk Satan, it starts in the beginning, right? So to speak, Genesis, it's, it was all there, but it isn't all there. We've just come to assume it to be that way. There's a quote from uh, Mark E. Smith that I want to read from his book, um, uh, The Origin of Biblical Monotheism. In this book, he's kind of tracing the trajectory from polytheism to monotheism. And he, d- he does have some sections where he talks about uh, this Zoroastrian influence. This is what he says. He says, 
uh, Zoroastrian dualism does not truly resemble biblical monotheism. Indeed, a principle of evil, for example, Belial, Satan, or the devil, began to appear only in the latest biblical works and in other Second Temple literature. The language of biblical monotheism appears to represent, at least in its formulations, developments of older language exalting the national god. On the other hand, this is not to say that the Persian religious traditions did not reinforce monotheistic rhetoric in this period or influence some of the biblical conceptions of divinity. I think what he's trying to say is that there wasn't a lot written around this time, specifically focusing on Satan. He says that, you know, anything is is like the second temple period and later. And so we, we don't really have anything to trace where this transition happened, but it, it is very interesting that there's some clear um, influence or exchange of ideas happening between Zoroastrianism and Judaism. Yeah, it definitely is, as like you said, in the absence of actual concrete literary evidence, the very fact that we know that those peoples were interacting geographically through conquest and whatnot just kind of begs that question and keeps you open to to the possibilities. Um, but of course, you know, things really get um, a little more defined in the New Testament. But I think one of the shifts that we start to see, even linguistically, I was kind of reading over a synopsis of the terminology that we use to associate with Satan. And, you know, this, tor- this term Diablos, right? Spanish and French, Diablo. It's, it's actually related to the Septuagint Greek translation, where every time you have, let's see, I think I took a note on this, so I don't want to just pull it out of my head because when you actually <laughs> when you actually get to it it's a little more interesting and maybe we can come back to that but each of these it's kind of like when you start to study the name of god you realize that they're actually not all uh they don't all have um it's not like you can just use one in place of the other they come from different time periods different linguistic understandings perspectives and they start to mean different things which you realize okay you know just the very the very fact that people are starting to embrace the reality that you know at the time of Elohim and Jehovah that there was also Elohim's consort um and what does that mean and that you know Rachel when Rachel was stealing the gods from Laban wait you're telling me that these covenant people were interacting with other gods right so what does that mean about this idea of Lucifer versus Satan, or in Mormon tradition, right? Lucifer being that brother of Jesus. Um, what does that mean? And then how are they related to demons, demonology, and these dark powers that exist? I think it's really interesting that in Judaism, for the most part, if you have a conversation with a Jew, um, their idea of Satan, they've always kind of understood this to be um, reflective of something that's actually internal, right? Your, I think the Hebrew phrase, yetzer hara, right? Like your, your darker nature or your passionate nature, something that needs to be controlled and checked as opposed to some demonic force that actually has power over you. And I find that to be very empowering. Um, Again, you kind of get to the to the 
the the origin of this myth, which the oldest texts that we have are are going to be from the Hebrew Bible, at least in this case, um, because it's an Abrahamic tradition, and you've got these early children of Abraham who are not interpreting it in the way that Christians do today. So what happened, right? Where where did the transition happen in nomenclature and um, appearance and in actual power given to that? identity going from as you said a noun or a proper noun to to actually a a person a person an individual who who has this ability to ruin our lives and i don't want to like jump all over scott but i'm curious as you were growing up what was your connection to satan what were your thoughts about satan were you afraid of these things were they real to you were they kind of so I have a lot of thoughts on that. And I think before we jump into <laughs> No, I do too. Yeah. Do you want to go there? I'd love to go there. Yeah, no, I think I think that's fantastic. It's it's one of those things where um I think it's closely related to the idea of the natural man within the LDS context, where you almost, at least in your head, in my head, like I knew that there was some sort of as a believer, that there was some sort of evil influence that was going to always be there. And whether that was the temptations or these feelings or thoughts that would arise, and I would, I would immediately associate those as, oh, that could not have come from me. Why would I have thought such an evil or horrible thing? Why would I want to sin? Or why would I want to, to do this thing that is clearly evil or wrong or against what I know to be right? And so immediately in my mind, and this, you know, even as a kid, a teenager, um, I don't remember too much what my thought patterns would have been as um, younger than that. But as a teenager, I clearly remember multiple times having, you know, thoughts that I just immediately associated with, you know, either the natural man or Satan, like directly, you know, trying to put thoughts in my head, thinking about it critically afterwards, even as a believer, I could never get a clear understanding or explanation of where to draw that line, like which, which things come directly from the natural man and which things come like straight from Lucifer or the demons. It was, uh, I mean, maybe not an everyday thought, but it was something that anytime I had an impulse that I thought or felt to be wrong, immediately that's where my, my mind would go. Interesting. What about like the demonic occult culture? Did your parents raise you to respect it, stay away from it? Did they kind of poo-poo it? What was your interaction with that? <laughs> now, I played Dungeons and Dragons as a kid, ah. and I played all sorts of nerdy things. Now, my my parents didn't, I don't recall them ever act, like actively teaching um, about demonic rituals or saying, you know, stay away from this or that. I did have a very close friend, who he's still a believer today, still a really close friend of mine. Um, his parents they wouldn't let him play Magic the Gathering with me or they wouldn't let him play Dungeons and Dragons with me. Or even I remember I went to the store when Diablo 1 came out and I went and bought it. And the cover was a bit graphic. I'm surprised that my parents actually uh, got this for me. But I'm telling it, telling my friend about it, telling him, hey, you know, you got to get this great this game. It's amazing. It's so much fun. And he comes back to me, you know, a day or two later, and he's like, "No, my parents won't let me get it because it's named after the devil." Interesting, because it's named after the devil, and that's it, right? Yeah. Mm. 
you know, you were talking about the Dungeons and Dragons thing, and I'm sure you watch Stranger <laughs> Things. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So because of my recent consumption of that show, uh, my husband and I decided to binge it, and I'm so glad we did. Um, but it kind of put Dungeons and Dragons in its context when it kind of became a big thing, like what, late 80s, early 90s. And that's exactly how the the community's kind of dealing with this game you know that they're cultish freaks that they're devil worshiper kids they're satanists which my husband and i are kind of laughing at and i'm sure the more conservative folk in the religious traditions around me would would just be aghast right that's that's heretical of course this stuff is very very dark and i remember kind of when harry potter came on the scene we that crisis arose again like can we let our kids read this stuff can we let our kids engage in this world and about witchcraft and sorcery and right. summoning spirits and your Patronus. <laughs> Which I'm like, to me, I'm like, awesome. Get those kids in Latin. This is the right <laughs> path. Like whatever gets them interested. Um, you know, to me, I think it's funny. I kind of grew up with both as far as, so this Jewish idea of your evil inclination, right? Your Yetzer Hara, that is something that I was very familiar with, associated, like you said, to the natural man. And then, you know, in Mormonism, so that, yeah, we, we naturally have these dispositions to be evil. But then within our tradition, we have these texts. And if you start to study early Mormon history, and you see in the New Testament, you've got these ideas of demonic possession and these really terrifying episodes of where people are losing bodily control to these exterior dark forces. Joseph Smith, supposedly, in some of his accounts of the first vision. Um, same thing. And so in my brain, I'm like, okay, I was always taught, if you don't mess with that stuff, it won't mess with you. Um, so in my brain, I'm like, okay, I don't, I don't need to fear it. And then as I became more aware of literature and my religious tradition, I thought, now, wait a minute, you're telling me that this stuff has the capacity to attack apostles of God. It has the ability to attack, you know, the founder of our religion, Joseph Smith, like, Certainly, he was more than just falling to the natural man. And so then I became to become a little confused and almost afraid of it. Um, I think because my parents did a good job of just saying, don't touch it, don't even interact with it. I kept a good enough healthy distance that I, I didn't have too much interaction with it um, other than this is interesting to me and there seems to be some kind of a conflict because again, how much is natural man? How much is actually um, these entities that are interacting with us that we can't see? Because our theology, the way I was raised, my theology allowed for it. But then my parents were telling me, you don't need to fear it. But I'm thinking, well, if I believe my scriptures, I need to fear it. Like this stuff is powerful. You know, <laughs> you hear these exorcism stories or people are being bound on missions and the spirit, these spirits are trying to kill them. And it, it just, I thought it became very clear to me. And this is the skeptic side of me. I don't think we know what we're talking about. <laughs> is that awful? Like, I just thought, here we've got all these people with these different experiences, and some saying you have nothing to fear, and some saying, no, this is real, you need to fear it. And people are telling me that they believe these accounts of the early brethren, and yet, if I were to tell them a similar experience, I think they'd think I was making it up. 
it's almost like it's almost like we provide a place for it historically, but we poo-poo it, at least the way I was raised in, in our contemporary times. I remember my grandmother, um, so my father's mother, whom I just adore, and she was telling me about her experiences down in the dorms at BYU. And that would have been back in like, oh, forgive me, Grandma, if I get this wrong, but like the late 40s, the 50s. And she was talking about a time that – do you know Do you know the BYU layout, Scott? I can't remember if you went there. Um, I didn't go to BYU, but I've been on the campus a number of times. I went to BYU-Idaho. Okay. Okay. Well, in BYU Provo, right off University Avenue and like 7th North, there's like these old dorms that have now been turned into like a computer lab or something. But they were really cool. Classic British looking. And my grandmother was there visiting some boyfriends of hers. Who knows? She said boyfriends. She means just like buddies. And they were playing with a Ouija board. And she told me this story to like caution me. And she said... They were, you know, doing the thing and asking it questions and all of a sudden it just stopped working. And they thought, oh, that's strange. And the social events kind of went on and then later on they kept playing with it and then it started working again. So they asked the Ouija board, why did you stop working? And you can imagine my sweet little shriveled grandmother with white hair and piercing blue eyes. And she looked at me and she said, as... I don't know, you call it the magnifying glass or the little thing that spells out the letters, right? That goes over the letters. It began to move. It went to a P and then an R and then an I and an E. And as it continued on, we began to get chills as it spelled out the word priesthood. And so as the (laughs) priesthood came into the building, her home teachers, uh, as they came to visit, then the Ouija board stopped because the priesthood power shut down those demonic forces. And it was very real to her. Um, and she told me that as kind of a warning, you know, you don't mess with those powers. Um, and then I, <laughs> I'm going to just for the sake of transparency, Scott, and we keep it real on the show. I'm going to tell you a story from my childhood that consider yourself um, be honored because I wouldn't share this with most people, but I appreciate that. Thank you. No, I think I, and I laugh at it now, but it shows that I was dealing with religious scrupulosity and fear and all kinds of things. But as a child, I remember I, I was very OCD, I think more than I realized at the time. I'm realizing it now. And I was a younger girl struggling with masturbation. And because of my anxiety, I think it was more of a soothing mechanism because it was like pre hormones. Um, when it was more of an issue. It can be a dopamine release. And I mean, there's a lot of things that... Yeah, as I understand it now as an adult, it makes a lot of sense. But I knew it was not okay, right? Because of our religious tradition and our religious teachings. And Scott, I tried everything. I, you know, I would compulsively pray. I would shame myself. You know, you you poor guys, you get that. What was that? I can relate to this. Uh, a lot. So. Okay. Okay. So yeah, I mean, they weren't even talking to girls about it back then. I just knew because of the strength of youth pamphlet, you weren't supposed to do that. But I know like for that, there was like for young men only, or there was like a handbook where it kind of basically gave you all these reasons why you shouldn't and how you can stop. And let's just say I tried everything. I couldn't stop. Scott, I remember thinking, okay, 
well, if I continue on this path, I'm basically damned to hell and I'm scared I'm going to ruin my life. You know, because you, you hear what people say about if you, if you can't stop this, this is what's going to happen to your life. And so in my brain, I was so afraid of my religious community and of shaming my parents. I thought maybe, and I, I can laugh now, but it's actually really tragic. Maybe I can make an agreement with Satan that if he gives me the power to stop, he can have my like this is me as a child scott i wasn't even 12 he can have my soul if i can just stop immortality i don't care what happens to me after because either way i'm damned but at least that way i won't shame my family and nothing nothing happens scott no i just basically i failed to conjure the devil like so here i am as a child i tried i tried connecting (laughs) i was offering what i thought was what he wanted right you raised thinking or being told satan wants you so i'm like okay satan i can't control myself if you help me control myself you can have my soul just let me get through this life and not be an embarrassment to my community and i was really disappointed after so many hours that night, it didn't seem that he was interested in my soul. <laughs> and this, I really did this, Scott. And so, wow, this is both funny and like also really sad because because your prayers and your desires weren't being answered otherwise. And so then your your only option was to turn to Satan and say, "All right, isn't that interesting?" Right? I mean, you could deconstruct that one, but I just remember thinking as I continue to learn about church history and biblical studies. And then I went into grad school and I'm getting all these different perspectives on the power of Satan. In the back of my mind, I'm like, well, I had this one experience that makes me doubtful. I think there's something different going on here. Um, So that's always kind of been something that's kept me grounded because I guess, you know, Satan doesn't really want my soul. I don't know about yours, Scott, but he doesn't want mine. He doesn't care. Yeah, yeah, it's. I did have an experience on my mission, and there's always, you know, the the rumors and the, the tall tales that people pass yes, about demons please on the mission. Share it, okay? But we were in a house, and there were two sets of, of elders living in this house, and the layout was such. The bathroom was clearly an addition to the house; like it didn't have a bathroom originally. And to get to the bathroom, you had to walk all the way like to to one end of the house, like all the way from the front door, you had to go through the front room, the kitchen, the bedroom. And then there was a long hallway that that spanned all the way down to the opposite end of the house. So like you walk all the way down one way, then you walk all the way back the other direction in a very narrow unlit hallway to a very small bathroom with like a, a teeny shower and a teeny toilet. The four of us were convinced that there were evil spirits in this hallway. So what do you convince? Like, was that part of the mission rumor when you moved in? And then, so how did that happen? Okay, I'm interrupting. <laughs> no, no, you're fine. <laughs> I just I, wanted to know. I recall, I recall the elders that were there before I got there, they were talking about it already. And I think, I, I think there's just like this hyper religiosity combined with maybe a little bit of scared of the dark at night and, you know, worried about your, your impure thoughts while you're walking towards the bathroom. Uh, that's exactly what I was thinking. Yeah. This is, this is me analyzing it afterwards, but you know, you, you come into the, into the place and, you know, all, 
all three of the other guys that live there have been there for you know a month and a half and they're like oh the hallway's haunted and i'm like oh okay i guess i got to deal with that now and <laughs> so we you know we dealt with it for a while and then like after after like three weeks i was like guys we have the priesthood like why don't we just like go over there say a prayer and kick out whatever's living in our hallway now where did you serve i served in, in in chile chile okay uh-huh. All right, continue and okay. yeah yeah concepcion sur yeah, so <laughs> we get, we sit down and like the four of us are kneeling there and they all look at me because they're like, it was your bright idea to kick out the, the, the demon or evil spirit. I'm just like, well, I've never kicked out an evil spirit before. What am I supposed to say? And so I just remember just like winging it, saying some sort of mumbo jumbo and, and uh, you know, raising my hand to the square. And I do remember that all three of the other guys felt a lot better about it. Mm-hmm. But at this point in my life, I was already beginning to doubt some things about the priesthood. I was still really confident, but I didn't have clear answers to some of my other questions. And so, sure, yeah, like it felt like it worked because my my roommates, the other missionaries, they acted normal in this hallway from then on out. But me, my thoughts, you know, because they talk about the evil or dark influence and having bad thoughts. Well, nothing changed for me from before to afterward. <laughs> But yet, you because of you doing that, it brought some peace to your companions. Yes, and I th- I feel I mean this is again critically analyzing it afterwards. I feel like the ritual helped them more than anything else. Well, that's of course where my mind would go, right? And it, when you start to study psychology, it's okay. What's the difference between things that are in the mind and things that are physically in front of you? Well eventually there's a blurred line there, right? So who's to say? Um, And I have a healthy respect for that, certainly. I I do think it's really interesting. You kind of get those stories, right? Those mission legends and lore, but it does seem to me from what I have read, Spanish-speaking missions, man. (laughs) There's something about (laughs) Spanish-speaking missions that these... uh, these issues of demonic possession are happening a lot. I don't know. I could just be what I've read, but it also might have something to do with Catholic culture being a large part of that indigenous area. I don't know. But yeah, um, there was at least one or two tall tales in every area that I went to. Sure. Wow. Yeah. Speaking of priesthood, I, you know, I remember there was a, a, like a family home evening my parents had with us. And looking back, I think, what made them think this was a good idea? But <laughs> it just seemed very normal at the time. We were still living in Oregon, so I was not even eight years old. And we opened up the Doctrine and Covenants, and we read the section on where you can tell if it's a good spirit or a bad spirit. Knowing the handshakes. And how to interact with that. And I remember practicing those handshakes and the phraseology with my parents. And I'm sure my mom would just bury her head in shame now. And my dad would be like, well, that's what everyone else was doing. Like, And we only did it once. But let me tell you, I took it very seriously. And I was always worried. Well, I remember. Like, well, I remember what's actually a good spirit and based on how I interact with them. And, it, you know, it was a cause of con- some concern. I mean, who's talking about that anymore? it's in our scriptures ah i know scott it's fascinating okay so we took a big tangent but i know our listeners will probably love that so yeah yeah and then you know if the listener has a story they want to share please send it that's this stuff is fascinating oh it is i mean it it is 
before we we transition, you know, because we've talked a little bit about um, maybe the the early Judeo Christian version of Satan, let's jump into Dante's because that would come uh, next, uh, maybe okay. historically. Uh, but before we get there, I just wanted to to quickly to quickly point out a mistranslation in the name Lucifer because I I feel, I feel like we would be remiss to to skip over something like that. Yeah, we um, need to kind of hit on nomenclature a bit, so that's great. In Isaiah 14:12, this is where you have the translation of the of into the word Lucifer, but what it's what it's actually referring to is light bringer. So in the Latin, Lucifere is I mean probably horribly butchering that but that's just means light bringer and it was in reference to the planet venus for half of the year it sets at dawn and they're using this light bringer motif to talk about a babylonian king in isaiah 14 12 interestingly jesus is also referred to as the light bringer in revelations 22 16 so if you're going to translate that directly to latin in revelations 22 16 it says morning star in the english or the kjv but in the latin it it refers to him as a lucifer as well because they're making that motif to the planet venus and the setting of the of the planet on the dawn Ah, that, you know, Scott, I'm really glad you brought that up because I think we give words such power and there, there is power in words, but I think the average, uh, believer would be kind of uncomfortable with that concept, right? Of, of that duality a little bit that we get in our textual variants, um, I remember kind of along the same line and I, I still somewhat, I haven't gone down that road in a long time of thinking about it but you know the idea of the serpent in the garden and we associate that idea with the devil and then later on you've got moses posting the serpent up on his staff and that being symbolic of jesus or redempting power redemptive power and um I remember all the different apologetic uh, ways you could look at it. and But at the same time, you always have to come back to the nuance, the duplicity. And that should make you a little uncomfortable. And in that, I mean, eventually it will humble you to realize there's more to this than we've been taught. There's more to this than what we've come to assume. And I, I find that kind of a path to liberation but it can certainly lead you through some uncomfortable tension for a while right the the thing that it makes me go uh, my mind go to specifically is is that the name lucifer doesn't did not have any reference to like a negative connotation it was it was a reference you know the light bringer was a reference to the planet venus and for good or bad this this term has over the years shifted to be a proper noun for satan and to have a negative connotation when that wasn't there originally when it was written absolutely good and i think you know you said you were going to shift a little bit into dante dante would not have been as impactful as it was if you didn't have that shift so present in the new testament writings and you start to see even then it's it's slight but I think with our cultural uh, understanding, we look back on it and go, oh, yeah, it's, it's everywhere. It's at least a lot more present, this concept of Satan as an individualized being, than it is in the Old Testament. But even then, when you start getting to some of the original manuscripts, you realize there's some nuance there 
that makes you wonder Jesus, the person, as he's interacting with Satan or as he's interacting with the Satans, um, man, what was really happening? Right. Which I have my own thoughts and opinions on, but we can jump forward to Dante. I'd love to. Well, we, can, we can go to the New Testament. I just um, wanted to give us moving move a little bit. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I don't, there isn't a ton more to say about the New Testament other than, you know, you have Jesus himself actually get the hence Satan, right? Or get thee behind me. Um, so Satan's obviously something that um, in this this text, the gospel writer is feeling confident to use in a, in a way that the readers are going to understand. And we've also got Jesus in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. Now, to me, the way I look at that now, especially with the, the Hebrew understanding of Yetzer Hara, you know, that's something I think everyone can relate to. In our moments of weakness, we are tempted by our weaker selves um, or tried or pushed to our limits. And I, I find that story very liberating, but I don't in any way connect it to anything supernatural. But you can see how that to some people works um, because that's certainly how it's, how it's taught. Yeah. So part of what happens is we grow up in these religious institutions and we're taught from the time that we're kids, Satan tempted Adam and Eve, and then they took the fruit. You know, Satan did this or that. And you could insert any concept to any story. You know, I'm just using this as an example. But then as adults, we go through and we keep reading these stories. And in our minds, we have already associated the serpent with Satan. And that's how we read it. But if we took the stories independent, and looked at them in the context of when they were written, who they were written for, they don't have the same meaning that we were originally taught. Absolutely. Right. That our contemporary culture has assigned to that specific text. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, and we'll get there, but I think when we talk a little bit about the Mormon ideas of Satan, that really, man, that puts some nails in the, the coffin so to speak on why mormons think the way that they do for good and for bad one of the reasons i wanted to, to talk about dante and milton specifically is i think there are some interesting aspects of both of these stories that highlight satan that i think that whether whether he did it knowingly or not i think there are interesting aspects of of both of those versions that are incorporated into the lds theology around satan yeah, 100%. That's where my mind was going. So why don't you lead off in that direction? We'll go with Dante since um, I guess historically that happened uh, or it was written before Milton. I mean, when I think Dante, I, of course, think of these images, right? These artistic images that are connected to that text that as a young college student, when I was in Europe, looking at all these paintings, that would always catch my imagination because it was like the the content uh, the content in the text provided for such fruitful renditions like it was just like mind-boggling to me so that was my initial thought yeah so dante was um was an italian writer philosopher from the 13th century and early 14th century so born in like 1265 died in 1321 he wrote the work called inferno um, sometimes referred to as Dante's Inferno, but it's just this long form poem with it's like 35 or 36 different sections, right? They're called contos and each, each one he's going through 
the nine circles of hell. And then within the, each of these circles, there's different rings as well. And so it's, it's a bit more complex than that, but it's, um, Dante, uh, the pilgrim is traveling with Virgil and they're, they're descending deeper and deeper and deeper through hell. And, um, it's got definitely some clear influences from other apocalyptic literature that had been circulating, but I'm going to skip. And this is, you know, clear down to the end. This is, this is Kanto's, uh, 32 to 34. And that's where you actually meet Satan or Lucifer. And it is such a, a dramatically different depiction than what you get from, from the Bible or from the new Testament. And so this is, there's some clear influences from other apocalyptic literature, but it's, it's a fascinating uh, reinterpretation of uh, Lucifer or Satan. Satan is in the fourth ring of the ninth circle of hell. And this is reserved for only those that sin against God. So the only people that get to this place where Satan is are those that sin against God himself. When Dante and Virgil get there, there are only three people that are actually there being punished. You've got Judas Iscariot, Brutus, and if you're familiar with Roman history, he's the, the one that betrayed Caesar at Tu Brute. And then Cassius, another member of that rebellion that was part of the death of, of, uh, of Caesar. So those are the three that Dante puts in hell with Satan. And I, and I said at the outset, you know, describing that picture, he's, um, he's described as, as being just gargantuan so overly huge that a human would fit fit into his mouth and that's exactly what's happening he's got three heads and there's each of these three people are in one of his mouths and he is eternally chewing on them eternally oh good stuff and it's like this gory like brutal gross scene it's it's this scene is kind of the climax of the entire story and when Dante sees this, he's with Virgil, they kind of like rear back. There's actually, there are no words attributed to Satan in Inferno because he's busy chewing on people. Okay. okay. <laughs> this is, so they see this and he, they immediately flee the scene. Virgil, he's kind of being the guide in this. He kind of talks a little bit about Satan as they're there. And some of the interesting things, like the, like what I had said, the, I think the key elements that I think relate or cross over interestingly to uh, LDS theology would be um, sin sinning against God as being like the ultimate sin. That's, I was thinking outer darkness, right? But one of the other interesting things is typically in, in other depictions, you've got that lake of fire and brimstone, you know, eternal heat and like burning forever. This is actually a really cold place. And it was formed when, when Satan was cast out of heaven, Lucifer cast out of heaven, he fell through the earth and created the nine circles of hell as he descended and then froze in place at the center. Oh, interesting. I've seen, I've seen a depiction of Jesus, or excuse me, wow, Satan. At the, when I was looking at Satan art, um, that very thing depicted, yeah, that's, I think you can find different renditions of that description all over. It's really fascinating. Yeah, where he like every, all of these layers of hell created because he fell. Right. He being interestingly, and maybe if Virgil's direct, um, pardon me, if uh, Dante's taking this directly from the Old Testament, you know, the Bene Elohim, which would be what Lucifer would be in this sort of a context. They were giants in Genesis six, and so perhaps that's where he's drawing 
this like giant interpretation of him as like this massive gargantuan entity. I think it's fascinating. And so those parallels that I said, I think those are the interesting ones that highlight some some parallels to LDS theology. Fascinating. Well, and I have some thoughts on that. Um that we could I be I don't want to jump ahead too much. Um but I was I was looking at some of the you know the biblical connections to this idea that led to an impersonation of this Diablos, right? This Satan. Um the book of Jubilees, you get this intertestamental writing. We talked about Job. Um, and the book of Jubilees is one specific text that it's pseudopigrapha, right? So it's a, it's a, a false writing. Um, Catholics don't include it in their apocryphal writings. Eastern Orthodox rejects it. Protestants, obviously, but there is a small group, um, of Jews in Ethiopia who still include it in their canon and then early Christians as well um, were heavily influenced by this text, which is, of course, it makes sense when the canon hadn't quite been formed yet. And so you've got all these patristic fathers, early church fathers, dealing with these texts that are influencing their ideas. Um, and I think I just want to read this section. You know, when we talk about angels, right, the biblical translation for angel Malik, it's a messenger, right? Just a messenger. But when you talk to like a, a Protestant or an evangelical pastor or minister, angels are specific beings within the realm of heavenly creations. They're very distinct from humans. Um, and they're like their very own thing, much like a demon, right? Um, they're their own kind of creation. And so this idea of angels that were cast out, you know, that leads to this idea of fallen angels. This is reflected and discussed quite a bit in Jubilees. And so you're talking about um, this idea of these hybrid children, the Nephilim, the flood. These ideas were, I think, fruit bearing, fruit giving to this developmental concept of, of Satan. Yeah, the the book of Enoch is is similar where yes. it deals directly with the the children of the Bnei Elohim and the daughters of Adam and yes. how these children became demons and they're some of the evil influence on the world. Right. And so with these texts, I wouldn't be surprised it seems like and I'm con- this is con- I'm conjecturing here but I think I wouldn't be surprised if we see in Dante's work, you know, these these great writers, these great artists, they were kind of polymaths. Have you heard that phrase before? A polymath? Yeah. And so I wouldn't be surprised if they were well aware of these texts um, that had influenced these ideas. And so then they give creative liberty. They take their creative liberty and they produce these great ideas that have their seeds in these earlier texts. Um, and so it's it's a real fascinating it's like a rope that's just been woven together with these different historical pieces. And you can start to trace these ideas from, again, these extra canonical texts that, that really influence Christian thought, even though they're not found in the Bible. And in regards to Joseph Smith, I mean, I'm not surprised at all that you see these ideas in Mormonism because Joseph was a mystic. 
And anyone who thinks he wasn't, I think you're a little naive because you start to look at the things that Joseph was interested in and the conversations he was having with people in his community. He was talking about these ideas with people, Jewish people, and they influenced his perspective. I would describe him as a polymath as well. And for the listeners, that just means someone who is just like widely read or just someone that knows like a wide variety of, of different things. And then they use this knowledge to create their works of art or their religion or theology, if you will. Yeah. Um, whether yeah. that means he was inspired or not, I'll let the listener decide. But that sure. definitely that definitely describes Joseph Smith. Great. Okay. Well, so I, I pulled away from Dante a little bit. Did you want to <laughs> go back to that or did you want to jump into that's all yeah, let's let's go to, to Milton's Paradise Lost. And there, again, there wasn't a ton that um, I wanted to cover on this. So John Milton born in 1608 and He wrote um, Paradise Lost. This is like an epic poem, basically detailing Adam and Eve's expulsion from the Garden of Eden. And Lucifer is one of the main characters. And it's still hotly debated whether or not Milton was portraying Lucifer as a good guy or a bad guy, because it's just the depiction is, is really fascinating. This book was still being discussed. Um, in the 19th century by Christians and ref, um, during the Reformation times. So the, people were reading this book and using it as, as their way to understand the Adam and Eve story. So this was, this was a very important work that heavily influenced Christianity for a long while. One of the quotes, and this is, this is from 1.263, and this is a quote directly from Lucifer. He says, better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. And this is him that, you know, he's been expelled, you know, expelled because of his his pride and and God cast Lucifer out. And as he was cast out, he has become Satan and just kind of the, the flamboyance and like the, the eloquence of Lucifer in paradise lost gives me really strong Michael Ballum vibes from the old temple videos. Like I was like, you have to give that context for those who don't know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's one of those things where it's like, (laughs) I, in my head, there's no way that Michael Ballum didn't read paradise, paradise lost or see some of these other works to, to portray Lucifer the way that he did, because it was just so stole the show. You know, it's not a movie, but, you know, you know, a typical movie, but he is definitely every scene that he's in, he's stealing the show. And that's kind of the impression that I get as I, it's been a decade, but when I read Paradise Lost, that's how I felt. I felt almost like Lucifer was the main character of this story. So, you know, main character, and then you also said kind of like this heroic figure, yeah. someone who may, it's, it's presenting this idea that perhaps he's misunderstood. Um, I was looking at some of these connections, these papers that have been written on these subjects. Like you said, people have been talking about it since it was penned. Um, And Cambridge published this short article by John Kerry in like the late nineties, Milton Satan. Um, But I'm just going to read this part right out of it. Romanticist critics in particular, among them, William Blake, Lord Byron, 
Percy Shelley and William Hazet are known for reading Satan as the true hero of Paradise Lost. Other critics, now this shouldn't surprise you, right? Such as C.S. Lewis, which I actually wanted to talk about C.S. Lewis, so let's get back to him. Um, and Charles Williams, both of whom were devout Christians, argued against reading Satan as a sympathetic, heroic figure. Uh, John Kerry argues that this conflict cannot be solved because the character of Satan exists in more modes and greater depths than the other characters of Paradise Lost. Um, and in this, Milton has created an ambivalent character. Um, so, it, but what you're saying there is is spot on. And you know, C.S. Lewis, I think, is one of the champions of the ideas that when we have depersonified Satan, when we stop believing that Satan is a real being, we've lost the battle. And I was kind of raised with C.S. Lewis to, you know, I, I loved a lot of his writings. Screw tape letters and... Absolutely, right? And I, and I still appreciate them for what they were. I might view some of them differently now, but uh, that idea, I could just see C.S. Lewis just totally totally recoiling in horror that perhaps perhaps he's part of this Satan's part of this bigger plan that we are not aware of and like you said I think when you start to study Mormonism deeply and some of these more mysterious early doctrines um, when you talked about the temple movies uh, yes I you know I so I'm friends with um, some of the daughters of, and you're going to have to edit this out while I think in my brain. Oh, Eugene England. Eugene England, the great playwright of Mormonism. Um, you know, Eugene England is famous for kind of pushing back against, um, was it McConkie, I think, and getting some flack for that while he was in his academic prime. And, but Eugene England was a lover of theater. And so his understanding of the temple was one of, kind of he, he saw it through a theatric lens and so as I have talked Temple with some of Eugene England's daughters, um, Jody and Jane particularly, uh, it's opened my eyes to to this view that I think we're not seeing as much of, but it, it kind of um, I don't know, I feel like in the decade before September sixth, right, the great expulsion of academic minds in and around BYU people were kind of open to this idea of this great drama of the temple and kind of viewing it on that lens as opposed to uh, an actual history um, where even today we don't claim that, but a lot of Mormons, I think, look at it that way. Uh, when you start to, to look at what is said in Doctrine and Covenants in the Book of Moses um, and in the Book of Abraham, so the Pro of Great Price, on the nature of Satan, Lucifer being Jesus's brother and this concept of this war in heaven and these oppositional plans, it really starts to lead you down the rabbit hole of theology that um, will lead you to a place, I think, that is somewhat at odds with general understood theology within Mormonism, um, right? This idea, you know, if, if Satan is the father of all lies, and yet he himself chose to to fall or to transgress, to sin, where did that dark energy come from? And yet he's a child of God and God is only light. It just opens your mind to the reality that these are complex things we're thinking about. 
and we don't really have the theology or the linguistic capacity to to really give them a systematic um legacy heritage like to, to there's always going to be another place to go or a deeper way to think about it that we don't really have answers to or we haven't gone yet within our within our our legend our lore so you've got people like um dante you've got people like um the writer of paradise lost sorry my brain is gone milton who kind of take this and they take it to the next level Right. And to some extent, Joseph Smith did that. Um, and I think it can make people very uncomfortable with some of the implications. And you see Mormonism, at least publicly, scaling back from some of those more mysterious places. I went on a tangent there, but you get what I'm saying. No, no, you're good. I want to I want to um, latch on to something that you had mentioned just a minute ago. And and I've tried really hard to be respectful about temple stuff. I'm not, I'm, I'm not, I don't want to go into covenants sure. or any of like the secret right. stuff, right, right. but there's a phrase that Lucifer says in there that always stood out to me and I could never reconcile well in my head. If, if we're going to imagine him as a, an intelligent, thoughtful person, he says a line that, that, doesn't make sense or didn't make sense well with the theology as he's teaching Adam and Eve and he's discussing with them. Yeah. Peter, James and John come up and they're like, what are you? No, no, no. Pardon me. This is earlier. This is when um, he's telling them that they're naked and God comes down and he says, what are you doing? And Lucifer's response is only what has been done on other worlds. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in my head, I'm like immediately that always stuck out to me because in my head I'm saying, okay, does that mean there are other Satans on other worlds? Right. If that's the case, he would have known about these stories of these other Satans. He would have known about, you know, the ultimate end of them and what happened to their, during their judgments and all of that. And he would have known, you know, the ultimate end of him making these choices to rebel against God. If I'm trying to place myself in his shoes and this is, you know, as an active believing member, I'm trying to like think about why Satan would make this choice. Yep. This is where the theology, it doesn't, it's not systemic. You're like, okay, I can't, it's not coming together. Something, we're missing something here. Yes, yeah. exactly. And, and I never thought of it as like, oh, this means it's all wrong. I'm just, it was just that I don't think the ultimate end is outer darkness for Satan. And that was something that I concluded like 10 years ago, watching the temple videos, trying to reason out in my mind why he made this one like offhanded comment. We don't have a lot of theology expanding on these ideas anymore. And they're almost the, the church today is almost rolling back and not backtracking because they're keeping a lot of the stuff there, but they don't want to touch any of the mystical ideas or any of the theology in any comprehensive way. Oh, you know, I, a couple of years ago, I wrote just a short little thing on my blog about interpreting Mormonism through the lens of mysticism. And I got so much pushback <laughs> and I'm laughing because I'm like, I, as, as more and more people kind of become open to the idea, not that we have to all draw the same conclusions, but it seems like the most charitable lens, right? If we want to find good in a tradition that maybe we admit perhaps doesn't have all the answers, but you can still find value there. I mean, I think 
why not? Right? Why wouldn't you want to look at this with mystic eyes? Um, I remember as a child kind of leading off on what you said there, Scott. I too remember asking the question, if, if we already know the outcome and if Satan already knows that he's going to be bound and he'll eventually be destroyed, why even try? And I think the answer that was given to me was, oh, he just wants to make as many people miserable as he is as possible. It's just all he can do. And it just seems strange to me, a little, a little strange to me. And yeah. Well, because it's yeah. presenting a flat character, someone who, who is only this, he is only out to get you. But when he's portrayed, you know, when you see him in, in Paradise Lost or even in the temple videos, you know, depicted in the scriptures, like he seems more complex than yeah. just, and for those unfamiliar, flat character means it's like, does not change, always the same sort of a mm -hmm. person. Uh, I remember, I don't, I can't say exactly when it dawned on me, but when I started to understand the Satan concept personally as metaphor, it, it's funny the the supernatural aspect of course suddenly disappeared um and so the anything that was frightening to me in in the occultish sense suddenly disappeared but really at on in another way of looking at it the the intensity of what could be frightening about this satan figure to me almost became more real because i recognized within myself the capacity for great darkness. Does that make sense? And I respected it because I realized, you know, you look at figures like Hitler, you know, say name one person who exemplifies pure evil and someone could say Hitler. But when you study Hitler's life, complex person, right? Loved children. Plenty of people thought he was great. He did these charitable acts. And yet He's this mastermind of 20th century genocide. And I think you start to see in people who we have historically just stamped as evil complexity. And it's disturbing because you think, where, where would I fit in that situation? And I think it's healthy for me to remember, you know, within all people is the capacity for great good and great evil. It's within us all, really. Norm MacDonald, the late Norm MacDonald, had an excellent joke about this very subject. It's, it's pretty funny, but he talks about how much Hitler's dogs loved him. Oh, dogs, right? Dogs who are pure and they yes. know a good person from a bad person. <laughs> oh, wow. That's disturbing. I mean, he's, he, he's a funny guy, but his humor, maybe not for everybody, but he does have a bit where he talks about how Hitler's dog loved him. Everyone is complex. And in fact, one of my motives for digging into this subject is next month, maybe two months out, I'm planning on doing an episode to, to go exactly where you're where you're headed with your line of thought here by saying, okay, if it's not mystical, if this is all internal happening within me, if this great darkness, this Satan figure and this Jesus figure, this, you know, great goodness, if they're both me, like, what does that mean? And I, one of my favorite stories is Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Uh, that's been what I haven't visited for a while. So this would be good. Again, this is, you know, spoiler for listeners down the road. I've got an episode outline for this idea of, of taking the concept of the natural man or the Satan or, or Jesus figure and saying, no, this is all us. 
we are both Dr. Jekyll and we are both Mr. Hyde. And um, just kind of deconstructing the idea around this subject and saying, no, this is a way to examine through a religious text, if you will, something that is internal to us. And if we, if we say we're not the natural man, or if we say, you know, we are only this good version, we're cutting off half of ourselves and, and not acknowledging that we are complicated human beings. Scott, you are, yes, like you're opening up this whole bag of rich, good conversation. I'm, I'm, I'm there for it. I am there for it. I just, I think about, you know, one of the greatest fears, one of the most terrifying things is to really look at ourselves in the face, right? To look in the mirror and really see who we are, what we're capable of for good and for evil. And I think about the scripture that, you know, perfect love casteth out all fear. Well, when you really love yourself, you're not afraid of yourself, but you also respectfully can acknowledge those dark things that you are capable of and you don't pretend it's not there. You're aware of it. And, and this idea that um, fear, you know, going back to the scriptures that Satan works through fear, the adversary works through fear, your evil inclinations work through fear. I, I think about going back to the whole, uh, the masturbation thing, right? The church uses fear to try and control that concept and yet, or that, or that practice, that habit. But I have read so many stories of people to take it to the next level, you know, that have supposed pornography addictions. And the minute they let go of the shame, the minute they let go of the fear that has been shoved down their throats for so long around sexuality, it's no longer an addiction. It's no longer a problem, but rather they start to see their sexuality as healthy and it's regulated and it's no longer a problem. Well, isn't that interesting, right? When we demystify and we actually look things in the face for what they are, there's power there. Um, but you have to do the shadow work. And so Satan plays a great role. <laughs> in our lives if we allow that to happen now that seems a little spooky right here we go for halloween but it is if you are if you have eyes to see this is one of those things that um is very valuable to take a, a closer look at but it's it's such a, an awesome you know if we're going to look at it through this sort of the lens this figure of satan is such a great way to examine ourselves and and see what aspects of us might lean more direction you know more one way than another it's just it's just beautiful i love it yes and who would have thought right prince of darkness beautiful (laughs) you love it satan the misunderstood (laughs) but it's i mean i'm right there with you and i know there are so many great resources out there uh, of people who have kind of elaborated on on this subject now that's not to say that I don't know, Scott, you and I are going to join a Luciferian temple or something. <laughs> but the the narrative behind Satan that uh, the Abrahamic traditions have has given him is not necessarily an accurate one. There you go. Maybe to do like a quick recap, some of the things that I find fascinating wi- with the Joseph Smith version or the LDS version of Lucifer and and his story that pull from some of these things that we've discussed. One, one thing that I think is just fascinating is that I don't know, and this would be interesting to look up. So I I don't know a ton about this, but as I'm, as I'm doing this research, it feels like Joseph Smith has elevated mankind, you know, the daughter, the sons and daughters of Adam 
to mm-hmm. B'nai Elohim. So to these, these sons of God, we are part of the, this, you know, this angelic tier of beings and like almost taking our mundane, you know, humanity and putting us into the, the supernatural role. Sure. In the theology. I think that's really fascinating. I'm not sure if anybody else has had done that before or where he would have drawn that sort of an idea, but I think it's a really interesting change that he made to this whole story because we're elevated to the same status as both Lucifer and Jesus. We are. And that's one of the things that has made, I think, mainstream Christianity very uncomfortable um, because they view, you know, again, there's this hierarchy of creations of God and humanity is is down there somewhere (laughs) we're not up there with god so to speak and this is something that um my some of my family members um on my grandma's side i've learned through journals and whatnot that they used to have some deep conversations about things like this the, the mysteries right the deep mystery like what does that mean as joseph has elevated us from a theological perspective to be like literal uh, not creations, but offsprings of God. What does that mean? And then who is Jesus really in relation to us? And yet, why is he different? And the same thing goes with Satan, Lucifer, who was this brother of ours. And uh, it, it really can, can lead to some fascinating conversations. So that, whether that's an innovation that Joseph Smith brought to the table or whether he pulled that from somewhere else, I just think it's really fascinating. Do you have an inclination? One, or, I, I feel like I feel like these things we've discussed can lead to that conclusion. I don't know. I, I, I feel like he wasn't necessarily the origin of that idea, but he definitely gave uh, structure to it, maybe. I don't know. No, I think it would be worth looking into. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if there was some influence. I mean, I'll have to go back and read Paradise Lost. Like I said, it's been about 10 years, but I, I get the impression that I think, I think there's elements of that that raise Adam and Eve a, a bit higher than, you know, being, you know, the dust of the earth, but to more children of God. Again, this is just me like off the top of my head. So I'll, I'd have to, I'd have to go back and do some more research. I think some of the clear like crossovers that we can see is, is, um, from Dante's Inferno, you have this idea of the worst sin that you could possibly commit is denying God or sinning against God. And, you know, whether that was part of Christianity as a whole from, from where Joseph Smith came from, but, you know, the clear influences throughout, you know, the, the six or 700 years since it was written to Joseph Smith, where this idea has, has pulled over. And then, um, from Paradise Lost, this idea of a fallen angel reigning in hell like he's in charge of everything he's not just like trapped at the bottom like in inferno um i I think there's some really fascinating um connections that can be made with the innovations that joseph smith made to some um, important literature on the subject that's a really key insight um what a what a distinction as you pointed out between just kind of existing and being being forced to be down there Dante versus having this realm of power of authority um, jurisdiction. That's a really, that's a really interesting place to go conversation wise. Yeah. 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 And that seems to be more the direction that Joseph Smith is going with his, with his um, theology around uh, Lucifer and Satan. 
man, if only we could sit down, we could, we could create some kind of like a, <laughs> some kind of a literary piece of this conversation we would like to have with Joseph on these issues. My goodness. Yeah, I mean, I would like, had he had the chance to continue and advance that theology, would we have seen an eventual more compassionate view? Because his theology, if you, if you know, are aware of these things, it, it changed quite a bit from his origins to the time of his death. I just don't think the average person is aware. But he did plenty of uh, theological expansions within his ideas. And some, you know, oftentimes even directly contradiction, contradicting what he had taught previously, Absolutely. which is, I think is amazing. And, and as you said, like, had all of the Nauvoo expositor and all of the things that led to his death not happened the way they did, there were plans for them to move out, out West, you know, New Mexico or California were some of the ideas that they had been floating around. He actually sent scouts out. Like there was, there were plans to move prior to his death and it would have been fascinating to see what other changes he might have made as he got older. I would love to sit down with him, you know, for better or worse, you know, we all, we know he made some pretty big mistakes. He did some things that were really sure. bad. Again, he is a complicated individual and some of these things, these innovations that he brought to the theology, I think are fascinating. Yeah, well, and exactly. his The reality of his impact on history just can't be denied. So why would that not be an incredible opportunity? Yeah. I, and again, Joseph himself, from what I understand, is far more – he was very much aware and if not even to say involved in the, the occult and mysticism than many Mormons are comfortable admitting. Um, I saw some pictures from a museum of some of that house, and it's like it's like a mom and pop museum somewhere in southern Utah that housed some artifacts that came from Nauvoo that were Joseph's. But you know this idea that he wore a talisman um, on his person, and that it wasn't just one or two seer stones; that there were several, and possibly a sacrificial dagger. And I mean, whoa right? <laughs> Mind-boggling. What is this all about? Yeah. Well, I, I think there's some interesting parallels, and I haven't ever seen this explored in other places, but um, ancient Judaic apotropaic magic, I think parallels real well with some of these occult practices. And I, I just think that would be such a fascinating idea to explore more of. Wow. Yeah, that's a uh, as you said that my brain just started started working a little bit and I would love to go down that rabbit hole. That's well, I think I, and I think there's some interesting parallels too to the garment and this apotropaic magic too. You know, things that would be worn to protect anyway. I, that's another subject that I I have a few notes but I haven't written like a okay. full outline yet. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, I'm there for that too. So, yeah, this is great. This is good and I am going to i just thumb marked the sandman on my computer to watch on netflix so awesome definitely watch it um for the listeners i think it's episode five there's a very graphic episode most of them are, are pretty tame there's one that's pretty graphic so if you're not cool with like self-harm and like gore stay yeah you know just be aware is it like da vinci code level or is it like way past that you know, in Da Vinci Code and Angels and Demons, there was some yeah. gruesome stuff. Yeah, it, it, you, you'll probably be fine. One of the one of the tough things is, is like, I know what the writers were trying to do. 
with juxtaposing episode four and episode, pardon me, episode five and episode six against each other. And they did it really well, but it gets pretty dark in order for them to portray it, what they're trying to tell. Bold. That's some bold artistic creativity right there. The amazing thing, again, I mean, the side sidetracking here, the episode six, um, he dream. So dream is the main character. He's in charge of the realm of dreams. You know, he's the Sandman that, you know, when you go to sleep, you know, you're in his realm. Basically, his sister is death and she is the main character. She, you know, she's the the main concept in this episode six. And it is the most beautiful portrayal of death that I have ever seen. Oh, my goodness. This is great. I'm excited. Happy Halloween to me. <laughs> yeah. Well, but but you have to you have to see episode five first because it it shows you what the world would would look like without dream as part of it and without it's good where they go, but it has to get dark in order for them to show this this better side. Oh, I feel like see now we've reached this point, Scott, where it's we've been going for like an hour and a half. But now I'm like ready for the next level. Like even this conversation <laughs> about death and the beauties of death, that's been on my mind quite a bit. Um, oh, you'll love this episode. Oh my gosh. Maybe we could maybe we could do another podcast on death because theologically death is associated with darkness and the devil. And yet Mormonism takes a unique twist on that, but also reality, right? The the reality of death has is something that Christianity has robbed its beauty and and its essentialness. So that could be another one. I'll give you just a little a little taste of this. So Okay, okay. This person passes away. Instead of it being like this, oh your life is over, you know, you're coming with me. She like sits down with him. He was playing an instrument and she's like, "Tell me about the song you were playing. Do you want to keep playing for a minute?" And they just have this like beautiful interaction. And then he's like, "Okay, I'm ready." And then he gets up with her and they go. And it's it's just like this, this beautiful moment. And the whole episode is vignettes of her going to collect people. And it is just like gut-wrenching. Like I was just bawling by the end of it. Just so good. <laughs> oh man. Okay. All right. Well, this is you you just put this in my little <laughs> Halloween goodie bag. This is my Halloween goodies right here. I'm excited to watch it and yeah, I hope that this conversation went the places you wanted it to go. And It did. This was a lot of fun for me. So thank you so much for coming on. All right. All hail. Hail Satan. That's no, right. <laughs> I really hope people that know me and hear me say that, you know. Apparently he's not interested in you anyway, though. So That's true. I mean, <laughs> bummer. Bummer. <laughs> oh, Scott. Well, thanks for being the kind of person I can share that with. Well, let's get together again. Let's talk about death. I think that would be a great next one to cover. Yeah, I would love to. I have a lot of, I've been having a lot of thoughts, so I'll be keeping that on my mind. And then. Yeah, so we'll, we'll touch base. It doesn't have to be right away. You know, just, you know, think about it for a minute, do some prep work and we can get back together. Okay, Scott, my friend, keep up the good work. All right. Okay. Well, I look forward to hearing this air and uh, we'll be in touch. Thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure. All right. You too. Bye-bye. That concluded my, with Kaisa about the devil. I apologize to the listeners. I didn't fully introduce her at the beginning of this episode. Her, her name is Kaisa Berlin Kaufusi, and she was formerly faculty at BYU 
where she focused on Old Testament. If you're interested, I had her on about a year ago, and I will put links in the episode description for those episodes. Great discussion. Kaisa brings some expertise and knowledge to this subject that I just think is so fascinating. Discussing with her is always a pleasure. As I said, I gave kind of a brief introduction partway through this that uh, some of the next few episodes that I'm going to be working on are going to be about Satan and about demons. And it should be fun. This is a subject that, as a believer, is typically taboo to dive really deep into. But there's such rich theology in it that I think is valuable for both a believer or a non-believer. There's so much that you can take from, from this sort of a study. I love that this discussion I had took almost a spiritual, introspective turn. It's made it so much more interesting. Big thank you to Kaisa for coming back onto the show, and I will invite her back, and hopefully we'll be able to discuss death very soon. Wherever you find yourself out there, getting the kids ready for trick-or-treating, making some last-minute adjustments on that costume, I hope that you have an excellent day. Day.